Johnny Erickson Tata had a diving accident at age 17 that left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. In a foreword to a book that came out just a few years ago, not a book written by her, but uh, she did the foreword to that book, she commented as follows. When a broken neck ambushed my life and left me a quadriplegic, I felt as though God had smashed me underfoot like a cigarette. At night, I would thrash my head on the pillow, hoping to break my neck at a higher level and thereby end my misery. After I left the hospital, I refused to get out of bed. I told my sister, just close the drapes, turn out the light, and shut the door. My paralysis was permanent, and inside, I died. You don't have to be in a wheelchair to identify. You already know that sad situation, situations sometimes don't get better. Problems don't always get solved. Conflicts don't get fixed. Children die. Couples divorce. And untimely deaths rock our world and shake our faith. All of those were words of Johnny Erickson Tata. I think it's quite an act of humility and kindness to the rest of us. Having gone through something like that, she's saying, I'm sure the rest of you can identify because you have challenges and problems too. I, in 71 plus years of life, haven't had anything that in any way begins to compare with that, but I'm very grateful for what she has shared. She is pointing out the fact that, yes, we do live in very difficult times. The book of Job says that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. In John's gospel, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. That's a pretty definitive statement. and there, there, There's no ambiguity or uncertainty to it whatsoever. And have you discovered already that life can be hard? We're going to have a business meeting later today, and there will be some things we vote on. I think if we were to vote on that one, it would be fairly unanimous. Yes. You have made that discovery. It is filled with disappointments and dissatisfaction and unmet goals and unfulfilled desires. And when you think about it, because of the speed and the reach of today's media, not only is it our problems and the problems of those we care about and are part of this church family that weigh on us, we not only carry all of that anxiety, but again, because of the speed and reach of media, we're plagued by the collective load of the problems of the rest of the people all across this globe. Can we admit together this morning that as Christians, we sometimes wonder where God is amid all the troubles, all the problems, all the trials that we face? After all, if he is sovereign, if he is Good, if he truly cares, why do his children endure so much suffering, so many difficulties, so many problems? It's a fair question. And today, while I would gather that every one of us here in this room can affirm God's sovereignty, that treasured doctrine has not insulated a single one of us from problems and trouble. Who among us? has not at times felt that God has abandoned us. 
Who among us has not felt that God is just simply not answering our calls, our pleas for help? Who among us has not felt that he has lost control of our lives and of the world that we live in? Or that he has chosen to remain silent? I've entitled the message today, When God Seems Hidden. When God seems hidden. Would you agree with me that uh, trusting the Lord in all the circumstances of our life can get very difficult at times? We can be glad that the Bible helps us in the task, not merely with commands, but also with stories. And one of the most instructive and inspirational stories is that of Joseph and his brothers in the closing chapters of the Old Testament book of Genesis. From our current sermon series, you recall that Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, is tragically sold into slavery by his extremely jealous brothers. However, God has plans for Joseph and triumphantly establishes him as a prominent leader in Egypt. It's an amazing plan that God uh, reveals through all of this, uh, and because of the fact that then Joseph sold into slavery, very sinful act on the part of his brothers, uh, taken to Egypt, becomes that prominent figure that I just mentioned there, that makes it possible for Joseph's family to settle with him there eventually, years later, and thereby survive a devastating seven-year-long famine. Now, I think we can all agree on this as well. Pastor Jeff has very meaningfully and methodically guided us to the midway point of the Joseph story. It begins at Genesis 37, carries on through Genesis 50. Today, we're taking a halftime break in this story to highlight one of the most important lessons of this remarkable narrative. I call your attention this morning to the litany of terrible, undeserved things that happened to Joseph beginning with his brothers imprisoning him in an empty cistern and then selling him for silver to slave traders who bound him in chains and took him to the distant land of Egypt where he became a house slave. And though Joseph, as a house slave, worked very diligently hoping to please his master and to improve his lot. The master's wife, who was very frustrated at Joseph for not succumbing to her seduction, she went ahead and falsely accused him of trying to, to, to seduce her. You know the story? Jeff has been preaching on it. He immediately was thrown into prison And you have to understand, and in that particular situation, there was no hope for eventual freedom. That was more than likely going to be where you would spend the balance of your life. Undoubtedly, Joseph must have cried out to God for deliverance from the cistern. He must have cried out to God for deliverance from his slavery in his master's household. He must have cried out to God for deliverance from the dungeons of the Pharaoh. He probably prayed for many years for help from God, and yet for many years he received 
no answers. God seemed hidden. However, and we learned this in recent weeks of the study, while in prison, Joseph met Pharaoh's cupbearer, who had been sent there because he fell out of favor with the king. This man had a dream that Joseph interpreted correctly with the help of God's spirit. Eventually, the cupbearer was reinstated to Pharaoh's court, but he forgot about Joseph, even though he said he would tell the Pharaoh about Joseph and speak, put a good word in for him. Eventually, Pharaoh himself had two puzzling dreams. At that point, the cupbearer remembered Joseph, brought him to the palace, and God helped Joseph again when he showed Pharaoh the meaning of the two very puzzling dreams. Those dreams were warnings from God about seven years of famine, a famine of unprecedented severity that would soon be coming over the land of Egypt and throughout the nearby world of that time. Also, Joseph outlined a plan of public policies that would not only uh, prepare Egypt for the famine, but also save them from starvation. It would do that, but it would also increase Egypt's power and influence throughout that part of the world. So now Joseph is in the presence of Pharaoh, no more powerful individual in the world at that time. The Pharaoh immediately recognized that Joseph possessed both brilliance as well as divine presence. He promoted Joseph to a high government position that gave Joseph the authority to set up a massive and what proved to be very effective hunger relief program that kept everyone in the country alive during that time of severe famine. And soon people from that entire region of the world came to Egypt for food so that they did not starve to death. Eventually, we saw this most recently in the study that Jeff has been leading us through, 10 very tired, dusty Hebrew men appeared at Joseph's door wanting to purchase grain so that they could keep their families alive. For a host of reasons, these brothers did not recognize Joseph, even though he very clearly recognized them. Part of that being they dressed as they used to dress. Joseph was no longer dressed in the land of Egypt as he had been in his Hebrew upbringing. And so Joseph recognized them, and his heart was deeply moved. Last week, we learned that Joseph hid his identity from his brothers and tested them first by whining and dining them and then by threatening and scaring them. Pastor Jeff referred to this strategy as sun and frost, kind of the hot and cold treatment. As a vessel of the Lord, Joseph was applying that treatment so that they might reach a point of repentance and eventually restoration. The final element that was noted last week was Joseph firmly stating that unless his brothers bring Benjamin, who was still back home, unless they bring Benjamin to him, they would receive no more food. Benjamin, of course, was the youngest brother. He was the favored son of, of uh, excuse me, of Jacob. 
and the only other child from Rachel. So once Joseph was out of the picture, Benjamin became Jacob's favorite son. So quite the dilemma that Jake, excuse me, that Joseph's brothers are now facing because they must return Benjamin or their families will starve. So at that point, I want to fast forward to the conclusion of the story in Genesis 50. Uh, hopefully stealing no thunder whatsoever from Pastor Jeff. So Jeff, if you're doing okay and, and watching us, please hear that portion of the sermon most of all. Joseph is reunited with his entire family. They live together in peace and prosperity in Egypt until both Joseph as well as Jacob die. All right, it's at this point you would be very appropriate to ask this question, what does all of what we talked about so far have to do with how you and I face loss, grief, anxiety, pain, suffering, disappointment, on and on? In other words, what lessons can we possibly draw from this to sustain us in those times when God seems to be absolutely silent, in those times when he seems hidden? From our vantage point, we can look back and ask if God was missing in action during those years when he appeared to be absent from Joseph's life. I mean, after all, where was God when year after year everything seemed to go wrong for Joseph? Well, to get right to the answer, the fact of the matter is that God was there. He was working. He was in complete control, even though he did seem hidden. Now, if I were to list, and some have done this, thankfully, because it appreciates the the God we serve. If I were to list all of the accidents and all of the coincidences that had to happen historically in order for Joseph first to become a slave in Egypt and later to be brought to Pharaoh's court, it would absolutely double the length of this sermon. Wow, those that were sleeping are now awake. (laughs) Whoa, I could not give you worse news, but we're also not going to put that to a vote because I think I know how that would go. So we're not going to list those accidents and coincidences. But notice I use the old quotes because nothing with God is that accident or coincidence. Now, it's no secret to any of you here this morning that the Bible very clearly and very consistently teaches that God is sovereign, that he is in control, and at the same time we know this from Scripture, that human beings have a free will and are responsible for their own actions and their own choices. In our minds, we don't see how those, they seem to be parallel tracks that never coincide with one another, not in the mind of God. Now, we know this, it's a very solid theological proposition, but thankfully this morning, it's so much more vivid and so much more powerful, this thing of God's sovereign control as uh, 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 as opposed to human choice, It is so much more vivid, powerful, and reassuring to know that it is no stale theological concept, but rather, when we see it illustrated in the actual story, it comes that much more alive to us. Do you realize, for example, that if Joseph's brothers had not chosen to betray him and mercilessly sell him into slavery, 
The family would not have been saved from disaster years later. They would not have been saved from death by starvation. It was obviously a part of God's plan. You see, God was present at every point of the story. He was working even in the smallest details of the daily lives and the daily schedules and the daily choices of all the parties involved. So please hear this very clearly. This does not make what the brothers did right. Does not make it proper. As a matter of fact, it was very appropriate that their shame and their inner guilt eventually crushed them to a point of a willingness to change, to a point of repentance. We said earlier that, in different words, that God mercifully provided a painful process, that process of sun and frost, hot and cold. God provided that process by which those brothers relived their evil behavior and were able to renounce it and then receive freedom and forgiveness. And I want to clarify that point. The terrible years of miserable slavery for Joseph, the terrible years of debilitating guilt for his brothers, the terrible years of anguish and grief and depression for Jacob, who is Joseph's father, all of those, all of those, all of those were brought about by the sovereign plan of God. That, again, does not discount the responsibility of each of those characters for what took place. But, quoting from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, God disciplines us for our own good. And then he goes on to say that after the pain comes the peaceful fruit of righteousness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I want to illustrate that. Um, British shepherds frequently take sheep and rams and throw them into a, a huge vat or a dipping trough that is filled with antiseptic liquid. The shepherd must completely submerge each animal holding its ears, its eyes, its nose, under the surface. For the sheep, it, very understandable that they would be extremely frightened by the process, and no matter how many times it happened, they didn't grow to love that process. If any of them attempted to climb out of the trough too soon, there's the sheepdogs standing, waiting, ready to bark and snap at them and force them right back in the trough as they were trained to do police dogs. But as terrifying an experience it was for the sheep, without being periodically treated, they would become victims of parasites and disease, which could lead ultimately to death. This is to say that the shepherd puts the sheep through this unwanted experience for their own good. Elizabeth Elliot was widowed twice. She endured countless inexplicable tragedies and troubles in her lifetime. After witnessing the process 
that the sheep went through, the one I just described, she reflected on how it illustrated our relationship with our shepherd. I want to quote from her briefly um, and, and picture again this whole relationship of you as the sheep, Jesus as our good shepherd. I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd I trusted. And he didn't give me a hint of explanation. As I watched the struggling sheep, I thought, if only there were some way to explain. And then she quotes from Psalm 139, but such knowledge is too wonderful for them. It is high. They cannot attain unto it. Now, Make no mistake about it, God was hearing and responding to Joseph's prayers for deliverance, for rescue, for salvation, but not in the ways that Joseph was asking for it, and not according to the time frame that he was hoping for. During the entire time in which God seemed hidden, Joseph continued to trust him. He knew that our good shepherd is committed to the sheep even though he often does things that frighten us or do not make sense. You ever had anything happen in your life that might fit in that category? Something that frightened you? Something that, try as hard as you might, it just doesn't seem to make sense. It only appears to be evidence that God remains hidden. Joseph discovered that often God does not give us the things that we ask for. His story illustrates the vitally important truth that absolutely everything that happens to us is a part of God's sovereign, gracious, loving plan, even the little things, even the bad things, even the unwanted things. This truth is affirmed in Joseph's message to his brothers after Jacob's death. And now I'm quoting from Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 21, words that hopefully across the years have brought you great hope, encouragement, inspiration, and will continue to do as long as you are on this planet. Joseph, speaking to his brothers, and again, there's a lot between where we are from where we left off in Genesis 42, and hopefully Jeff will be able to do Genesis 43 next week. Thanks for your flexibility. Several of you helped pull out the sermon notes for Genesis 43 this morning because that wasn't going to be happening. But there's uh, still a lot to happen, 43, to this point of chapter 50. Uh, but here, and a lot of reconciliation Joseph showing great leadership, he says to his brothers, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, and he calls it pretty clear. You know, he misses no words at this point. As for you, you meant evil against me. Now for the greater reality, and the point of Joseph to his brothers, but... 
God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. What is that? To preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph clearly assumes that behind everything that happened, everything, all things, behind all of that, there was evidence and testimony to the goodness and the love of God. Even though what his brothers did was evil and wrong, God purposed it for good. That's the Old Testament version of Romans 8. 28. So we, we kind of got that in each of the Testaments, right? Which says that God causes all things, everything. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those are a couple expressions used in the New Testament to refer to believers in Jesus Christ. It's against the backdrop of the Joseph story that the 18th century Anglican minister and author John Newton, who we know better as the one who wrote Amazing Grace, he sent the following letter to a grieving sister. Your sister is much upon my mind. Her illness grieves me. Were it in my power, I would quickly remove it. The Lord can, and I hope will, when it has answered the end for which he, God, sent it. I wish you may be enabled to leave her and yourself and all your concerns in his hands. He has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. And if we consider what we are, surely we shall confess we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, his sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. doesn't always feel like a way of grace. All shall work together for good. And then listen to this statement. There's still more to the letter. I want to read a, a little bit further, but this statement just leaped off the pages for me. This is John Newton writing to a sister who is very much grieving the health condition of her own sister. Everything is needful that the Lord sends, nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends, nothing can be needful that he withholds. Not easy necessarily to come to a place of agreement with that, but it is important that we do. Newton added this, you have need of patience, and if you ask, the Lord will give it. But there can be no settled peace till our will is in a measure subdued. Hide yourself under the shadow of his wings. Rely upon his care and power. Look to him as a physician who has graciously undertaken to heal your soul of the worst of sicknesses, sin. Yield to his prescriptions and fight against every thought that would represent it as desirable to be permitted to choose for yourself. When you cannot see your way, be satisfied that he is your leader. 
When your spirit is overwhelmed within you, he knows your path. He will not leave you to sink. He has appointed seasons of refreshment, and you shall find that he does not forget you. Above all, keep close to the throne of grace. If we may seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure that we shall get none by keeping away from him. Here's how I want to conclude this morning. Um, And that would be by assuring you that as impressed as we might be with Joseph and the attitudes and the perspectives and the thoughts about God that he maintained through what seemed like the worst of human suffering uh, and rejection, betrayal, etc., false accusation, keep in mind that Joseph was merely the forerunner to the one that we should be infinitely impressed with. One Bible commentator made this Christ connection. Centuries after Joseph, another came who was rejected by his own and was sold for silver coins. He was denied and betrayed by his brethren and was unjustly put into chains and sentenced to death. He too prayed fervently, asking the father of the cup of suffering and death that he was about to experience could pass from him. But when we look at Jesus' prayer, we see that he, like Joseph, says that this is the Father's cup. The suffering is part of God's good plan. And he says to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus finally says to the Father, still quoting from the Bible commentator, uh, Jesus finally says to the Father, Thy will be done. He dies for his enemies, forgiving them as he does, because he knows that the Father's redemptive, loving purposes are behind it all. His enemies meant it for evil, but God overruled it and used it for the saving of many lives, and he's still doing that today. Now raised to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, rules history for our sake, watching over us and protecting us. I invite you to hold on to this one, well, let's call it an anchor, an anchor that I encourage you to hold on to, to let your your heart be connected to this anchor in all of your storms. And the anchor is this. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, God is absolutely for you. Because of the cross, God is absolutely for you. That's not all. Because of the resurrection, everything will be all right in the end. Only because of the resurrection and the God whose power brought about that resurrection can we be assured that everything will be all right in the end. And yes, I know, it could be a rough journey from here till then. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge right now that if you if you were small enough to be understood you would not be large enough to be worshipped 
And today we choose to interpret our pain through the lens of your character and ultimate mercy. We confess that all of your actions are rooted in your covenant love for your people. We confess that when you strip us of everything and all we have is you, we have enough. We have everything we need. We confess that our hope is not in a change of circumstances, but in the promise of a God who never stops being sovereign or merciful. We confess that suffering and pain are not ultimately victorious and that everything is working out according to your loving plan for us. We confess that your intentions and what you do in our lives are kind and that somehow pain and hardship are for our ultimate good. We confess that your sovereignty and reign are not negated by suffering and that even when we cannot imagine how you might use hard circumstances in our lives, we can still believe that you are in control. And so with Job, we declare that we know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Amen.